Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, um, Nolan, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks. How, how are you, Will? Doing great, doing great. And and just for the listeners, I'm joined today as well by Lars Doucet, um, a frequent co-contributor here, especially on the, the land policy side of things. Um, Howdy, folks. Well, well, Nolan, you know, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, totally. So uh, I'm a professional city planner. Uh, I was a city planner in New York City, uh, in Queens specifically, uh, and I'm really interested in land use planning and how we govern the growth of cities, how we manage the growth of cities. Um, so in the U.S. context, that means looking at things like zoning, uh, subdivision regulations, and how these have a huge impact in shaping what cities look like and how they work or don't work. And uh, right now, I'm also working on a Ph.D. in city planning at UCLA. So real quick, uh, just for the normies here, which includes me, what does a city planner actually do? You know, when a normie like me hears that, you, you kind of think someone's playing SimCity, but in real life. So what are what is your actual mandate in like the role of a city planner when you have that job? And what are the, the, the official limitations and what are the functional limitations on what you can and can't do? Yeah, that's a really great question. What is a city planner? Um, yeah, I think you're exactly right that most people have a SimCity conception of city planning, right? Where, oh, there's like this, this board of, of technocrat uh, deities who manage everything about cities day to day and kind of couldn't be further from the truth in a lot of respects, um, maybe in different political or historical contexts, it was more like that. But at a contemporary U.S. context, the planner can be a lot of things, right? So it can be someone basically doing code enforcement, uh, you know, making sure that the hedges or the fences are the right uh, height or not too tall, uh, all the way up to people who are doing long range planning, right? So people who are putting together capital plans uh, for cities. So, you know, what are gonna be our big infrastructure investments over the next 10 to 15 years? Um, so there's a range of different types of planning that happen, you know, among those different levels, right? So um, you have planners who are focused on environmental planning. So protecting sensitive natural areas, dealing with things like stormwater management and sewer management, uh, dealing with things like air quality, uh, you have planners who are more focused on land use planning, which is my specialization. So regulating growth, regulating uh, the built environment, what can be built where, what types of uses and at what scale. Uh, you have planners who do historic preservation. You have planners who do uh, economic development. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a catch-all title for anyone and everyone who has anything to do with policy at the city or metropolitan level. So you play play quite a few different roles there. It really is dependent on where you are in like uh, in context dependent, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and, and you really do specialize pretty intensely. You kind of gotcha. have to. I mean, it's it, the, the planning profession prides itself as being jack of all trades. Um, but in most cases, you'll, you'll specialize pretty heavily. And there are planners who do the types of things that I think the average person thinks a planner does, right? So parks management, you know, planning out parks, uh, planning out street grids, reviewing new subdivisions, stuff like that, that does still happen. 
Uh, but kind of back to the, the original point you were making, Lars, which is the, the SimCity view of city planning. In practice, you know, uh, planning is very, very, very political. And in many cases, practicing planners actually don't have a lot of leeway to sort of push their policy perspective. In many cases, you're, you're kind of a bureaucrat um, that's kind of following political orders. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't great planners who- Orders, sort of, orders from whom? Uh, usually elected officials or the self-appointed leaders of community groups who can scare elected officials. <laughs> to give you the cynical answer. I'm going to give you the cynical answers rather than the like planning school theory answers. Well, well yeah, that's what we're actually here is like, because it's like, right. I asked earlier, it's like, well, what, you know, and, and I, I should know better than to do double barrel questions. I'll just chop them up. What are the actual limits of the power, like officially, like in platonic space land? And what are the actual practical limits of the power as actually practiced in the field? Yeah, I mean, so in theory, uh, early planning institutions were designed to be kind of independent and insulated from the political process. The idea was you wanted to have an independent city planning commission. It might have been appointed by the mayor or the city council and usually appointed by the mayor. Um, and then an independent planning agency. And the idea was to set up institutions where these people could really like act independent of political institutions for better or worse, right? This is a very like kind of, you know, a modernist view of governance, right? We need to get the experts and then insulate them from the politics. Uh, and in our current situation where we're very much at the opposite end of that, it's kind of attractive, but today, you know, it's much more of uh, a political process, right? So in, in theory, right, what city planners are meant to be doing is they're going to sit down and write a 30-year comprehensive plan, you know, pulling together demographic data and economic trends and, you know, what does the city look like? What kind of infrastructure is it going to need? How are the demographics changing? What, how does that show up in service provision, stuff like schools and parks and uh, transportation planning? Sit down from that comprehensive plan. All functions of government are supposed to be sort of built around pursuing this plan. So, you know, the street investments are going to be based on the comp plan. Where we open schools is going to be based on the comp plan. Where we open parks is going to be based on the comp plan. Where we allow housing and encourage housing versus where we try to disincentivize or block housing. It's all going to be built around this comprehensive plan that was supposed to be based on these big, you know, economic and demographic principles. Um, in practice, a lot of cities actually don't even have a comprehensive plan. Um, and in many more urban contexts where there is a comprehensive plan, there's actually no legal requirement that cities follow it. So it ends up becoming a kind of perfunctory um, process and, and things like zoning just become hyper-politicized. Cool. So I'll ask one more question and I'll let Will take the lead for the subsequent batch of questions. So you're brought on this podcast in part because of this book you've written. Uh, do you want to tell us what the thesis of the book is and how it connects to the spiel you just gave us? <laughs> yeah, so I just gave you a really big picture spiel on how city planning works. Uh, and it's big and it's messy. And it's also hard to generalize about because it, it varies based on state and local rules. So, you know, city planning in D.C. works very different from city planning in San Francisco, for example. Uh, you know, Chicago and uh, a planner in, in Chicago uh, might move to a place like Miami and not kind of have any real sense of how the planning works. Just to, it's, you know, maybe that's not the case, but it's certainly possible. Um, so my focus is on land use planning, the way we govern the growth of cities. In the U.S. context, that's mostly things like zoning. So zoning does two things. Zoning uh, segregates uses. Uh, so it says you can do residential here, commercial here, industrial there. And then, you know, within those broad categories, there are districts for 
you know, innumerable thousands of different subcategories, right? So um, corner groceries as opposed to supermarkets, apartments as opposed to single family homes, light industrial as opposed to heavy industrial. Uh, so that's half of zoning. The other half of zoning is regulating the massing or the density of these developments. This is things like how close can a building sit to the property line? How tall can the building be? How much floor area can the building have? Um, and again, these are going to vary based on district. Uh, as we're probably going to talk about over the course of this podcast, there are a lot of critiques of how zoning works in the U.S. Uh, in the book, I argue that it's made cities uh, more affordable, uh, more unaffordable, excuse me, important distinction. <laughs> um, it's, it's, locked, uh, it's blocked people out of moving into high opportunity areas where they could, you know, become more productive and increase their wages and make us all wealthier as a result. Uh, it's entrenched things like racial and economic segregation, things that we like to think we've moved past, but we very much haven't. And it also forces cities into a kind of sprawling, auto-oriented pattern of growth. And it's fine if you want to live in a context like that, but in zoning, we don't give anyone the option to live maybe in a neighborhood with a corner grocery or to, to live a life where they can take a bus or ride a bike to work. So, you know, we know that zoning is broken and it's not getting us what we want, um, but there hasn't really been a lot of conversation about, you know, we can reform zoning and that's fantastic. And, and we'll talk about that as well. But, you know, what would it look like to move past zoning? You know, what do we want ladies planning to do? At some level, we want uh, incompatible uses to be separate. We would ideally like growth to be coordinated with infrastructure investments, of course, right? How can you argue with that? And we know that zoning hasn't achieved those, but what would it look like to have a land use planning system that does that? And zoning has kind of sucked all the air out of the room on these conversations. Like, well, we have this, this is how we do it. We have the system and we all know it doesn't really work, but we're going to tinker with it and make it slightly better. And I kind of just wanted to move the conversation to the next step. Like, no, like we all know the system's broken. Like what would happen if we just tossed it and started over? What do we want land use planning to do? I like how you talk about what comes after the revolution, because it's, it's nice to talk about what the problem is and we'll just abolish X. And then once we've done that, you know, everything will be fine. But I like that as a city planner, you're talking about what comes after. And I will I'll let you ask any any concrete follow ups here because I've talked enough already. But this is this is this looks really interesting and spicy to me. Well, after the revolution, they'll have to hire me and my consulting firm. <laughs> if they want very the very nice. Right. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, no, I, I'm curious, do you know much about the history of zoning? Like, you know, how did we get here? Um, and, and, and yeah, yeah. How do we get here? Yeah. So, so since the dawn of time, we have had land use planning, you know, that's such a great, like freshman way to start a point. Um, yeah. Uh, since humans have lived in cities, uh, we have had mechanisms that look like land use planning, right? Okay. So, you know, Regulations on building materials, uh, which actually aren't usually in zoning codes today, but right. So historically, it would be like you can't have the exterior of your property be built with with flammable products for obvious reasons, right? Or rules about distances between properties if they were, or rules on things like noxious uses, right? So before zoning, we had rules to say, hey, uh, you, you just can't have a slaughterhouse in the middle of the city. Uh, sorry, like we know it's going to be a problem. We know it's going to be smelly and noisy and people aren't going to like it. Or, you know, rules segregating other disfavored uses, sometimes for what we would recognize as traditional externalities, sometimes for cultural reasons, you know, uh, uh, sex, sexual or uh, alcohol-related businesses, right? Um, zoning is, is, is a step beyond that. And right, so in the early 19-teens, at sort of the tail end of the progressive era, uh, you know, right around the time that we're adopting uh, prohibition uh, and things like eugenics are really popular and, you know, not to completely mischaracterize this era, but just to emphasize the point that 
a lot of bad ideas that we scrapped were popular back then, and I would argue zoning is one of them. But in 1916, the first zoning ordinances come online, and they're different in the sense that they aspire to comprehensively catalog out all land uses and determine every square inch of the city where each use is going to go or to be allowed. Um, and also, too, zoning takes a step further on stuff like massing rules. So historically, many cities did have height limits. Uh, they didn't have height limits because they were worried that an apartment building would block the sunlight that the lady needs for her zucchini garden, to use the infamous San Francisco example, but because if there was a fire, we needed to make sure that we could get the people safely out, right? And, and technology, you know, fire abatement building technology, to say nothing of firefighting technology, was not sophisticated. So historically, cities have these things like setback and height limits, but they're very, very, very closely tailored to actual nuisances. And zoning kind of goes a step further to say, you know, we're going to not only say where every use can be, even things that we don't historically think of as a nuisance, like an apartment building or a corner grocery, we're also going to rigidly determine what every single building is going to end up looking like in terms of the massing. You know, we're going to have new residential subdivisions that are only single family homes that have no commercial, where every home is set back 30 feet from the front, from the street, where every home has a large backyard. Um, very much a, a kind of uh, uh, a social planning vision, right? Like because by being able to regulate these things, you're able to regulate what type of person is allowed to live where and what type of life they live. And so zoning has this sort of, you know, much greater ambition than anything like city planning in the past. And as I try to argue in the book, you know, there's this, there's maybe this like Disney quality. There's like this Disney story of zoning that I think a lot of planners are taught and, and reinforce uh, as they do zoning day to day to clear their conscience. This idea like, oh, you know, in, in the early 1900s, um, industry was just starting in 1910 and there were smokestacks and there, you know, there were factories next to residential areas. Uh, and so like, that's why we needed zoning. Um, and if you actually dig into sort of like the road to zoning in places like New York city or Berkeley, it's very much more a sort of battle royale of special interests. Right. So in the New York context, um, you know, commercial landlords were irritated that, industrial was moving near them. And they weren't upset about industrial because of any traditional negative externality. The Fifth Avenue uh, retailers were upset that uh, the poor Jewish factory girls who worked in those factories would come and walk around on the street and lower the, the class, you know, the classiness of the street and scare off their upscale uh, Anglo customers. Or uh, in the Berkeley context, right? You, you see things like, and they, you, we need to adopt industrial zoning. Uh, okay, interesting. What kind of industries were they worried about? And it's invariably like a Chinese laundromat, um, you know. And 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 of course they they were clever enough to say things like, oh well, the, the laundromat's a fire hazard. Uh, but then it's like, oh okay, well like why do you only bring up the Chinese laundromat? And we also know that there's this kind of really nasty history in California of of uh, anti-Asian uh, discriminatory land use policy. So you know, zoning is is it has these really unusual and modern and very sort of technocratic ambitions. Uh, but it, it ultimately has kind of from its beginning served special interests. And that's, you know, that's what I'm trying to, to drive home in the book. But there's, there's not this like Disney story of like, oh, yeah, you know, smokestacks next to schools and then planners came in and saved the day. It's much more complicated and it much more reflects the way that we know zoning works today. That makes a, a ton of sense. It, it, those special interests. Um, can you describe who kind of the bootleggers and Baptists are? Uh, of these interest groups. And, and the follow-up question to that is, is, um, you know, how 
this is probably a bad word, defeatable, are they? Or like, how is how possible is it for us to overcome this? As Because, you know, it's like this crazy collective action problem, it feels like. Just quickly to de-jargonify for anyone in the audience who doesn't know what bootleggers or Baptist is, it's two people you would assume are in opposition who actually kind of work together, whether, whether if, if that sort of makes sense, like the prohibitionist Baptists actually kind of benefit from the bootleggers and vice versa, you know, who are making the illegal alcohol and so on. Yeah, that's that's such a great question. And thanks for for clarifying, Lars. Um, this is I, I, I'm reviewing the final proofs on my book, and I think I used this metaphor like four times, and I might have to like actually turn it down a little bit. But it's such a it's such a useful lens for interpreting public policy. But so to, to your question, I think that's really crucial to understanding zoning because you had the Baptists, right, who were these kind of uh, high-minded government reformers who, you know, they they were kind of swept up with the times and, and thought, literal you know, literal Baptists or just metaphorically. Um, I think they were literally probably some variety of mainline Protestants. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't uh, actually, yeah, I'm almost certain that's probably what they were um, because I mean, that's another element of this, right. Is that's another lens of like politics that's kind of faded away. This like, like being a mainline Protestant as like denoting your, your political views in some way. Right. Like, cause at the time, a lot of immigrants were, were, were Catholic, right? And people from, from Southern and, and Eastern Europe. Kind of put that tangent to the side now. Uh, but the Baptists in this context were um, uh, people who, you know, very understandably, like, let's use some of this human knowledge to, you know, rationalize our cities, right? Like, our cities are booming. And yeah, there are, like, in some cases, real land use conflicts that could have been prevented. Um, yeah, there are issues of congestion on the subway in the New York context or issues of congestion in certain very high density parts of the city. You know, there were problems that were ultimately solved by institutions other than zoning, right? So overcrowding and housing, right? Which was partly a function a function of immigrants, you know, being very poor and needing to crowd into areas where they could be near opportunity. You know, we solved that with stuff like building and health and safety regulations. Um, but so, you know, you, you get this Baptist story for sure. Um, the bootleggers, it really depends on the context. So as I mentioned in the in the, in the New York City context, one of the main interest groups that pushed for zoning was the Fifth Avenue Association, an association of retailers along a very posh commercial district who were upset about the incursion of industrial. Uh, in other contexts, uh, the principal bootleggers were homeowners who were irritated about uh, apartments coming onto their block into maybe nice areas of the city where they lived. And rather than sort of, you know, do it Kosian style and pull together and pay, you know, property owners not to develop their property in ways that, that upset them or, you know, voluntarily opt into covenants or deed restrictions, uh, they turn to government to basically enforce their preferences and enforce their financial interests. One thing that's really interesting about this is that it kind of seems like it's very much a heavy handed um, kind of modernist um, centrally planned kind of vision. And we, we can go into that, but one thing I want to make sure we cover just for the sake of, you know, keeping ourselves honest here is, is what are the benefits of zoning? You know what I mean? Like if, if we just try to be as fair as possible to zoning, you know, what are the problems? It doesn't just purportedly solve. What are the problems it actually solves? Right. And are there things like, I, I assume your case is that we can solve those things in other ways without all these problems, but what are the things like it legitimately does solve? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I have actually a section in the book uh, where I try to steel man zoning. 
And I mean, I think to, to touch on, I know you, you, you wanted actual solutions that come out of zoning, but I think the, the, the argument that we need, we need mechanisms to prevent incompatible uses and we need mechanisms to coordinate growth with infrastructure investment is obvious, right? Uh, I think there's no question in my mind. Um, and exactly to your point, because zoning is around and because zoning is such a powerful tool, it often does end up getting drafted to do things that kind of look like city planning, right? So like we say to new developers, hey, if you wanna build this big building, um, we're only going to let you do it if you dedicate some area on the ground floor for a public plaza. Um, or, oh, if you wanna build this apartment building, we're only going to allow it if you set aside 20% of the units to be income restricted for families earning 40 to 60% of the area median income. Um, you know, everyone knows that we need some forms of subsidized housing. Uh, you know, we can quibble about the form that that takes. Or everyone knows that we, you know, a, a healthy city needs public plazas and public parks. Um, but so zoning ends up getting drafted into a lot of these mechanisms. Or occasionally for things like environmental uh, regulations, right? So setbacks from from uh, waterways or setbacks from wetlands. Sometimes zoning is, is used to accomplish those. Other times uh, not. It really just depends on the city. So with wetlands regulation, right, a city might adopt a wetlands ordinance or a city might use zoning to accomplish that. Um, you know, I think a, a benefit just to, to, to give the devil its due, I think one argument that a lot of people would make for zoning is they would say, well, zoning is how uh, people get some say over uh, new development that happens in their community. Um, and, you know, I think there's a Yimby impulse to just kind of relentlessly make fun of that uh, claim. I'm actually not totally unsympathetic to it. Um, you know, and I, I think it's, it's reasonable that people would have some say in things like public investment or the general rules that are going to structure new development. I think the question is, what's the healthy way to, uh, the healthy way to sort of give people that say? Today, the way that zoning does it, uh, and I'm sorry, Lars, I'm going to slip back into criticism here. The way that zoning does it is to say, all right, like when a building gets proposed, you can come and yell at the developer and also the city planner, and then we'll make the project smaller or we'll just kill it. And uh, that's you having your say. I think that's a very impoverished view of like public participation and uh, participatory city planning. And I think another way we might do things is to say, let's take that comprehensive planning idea seriously. Like rather than sort of having these ad hoc public hearings where people just show up and yell and essentially their only option is to say no. Um, why don't we, in a systematic way, go out and survey people? You know, what, what do you want in your community? What sorts of things do you want to see? Uh, do, you know, scientific surveying, uh, things like focus groups with a representative, uh, uh, you know, cross-section of the community. Um, are, you, are you saying that what we've been doing is setting up a model where the, the, the council of the people who get to make the decisions just kind of go out and make a decision and then they present it to the public and then whoever's motivated enough to show up yells at them and tells them not to do it. And so they cut it down and then you just wind up with something nobody wants or is that a mischaracterization? I, I, so the way zoning works in most cities is you'll have a zoning ordinance that was written 25 to 50 years ago and no politician wants to touch it uh, because opening that up is going to be a huge headache. Just look at the situation in Austin where they've been trying to rewrite code next for like two decades now. Um, so nobody wants to touch it. So you have this old, book of rules in a zoning ordinance that everyone agrees make absolutely no sense and don't allow the type of development that, that everyone agrees is necessary. But so rather than change that zoning, 
the system becomes, well, come in and ask for discretionary relief. So come in and ask for a variance or come in and ask for a special permit. We'll let you ignore those zoning rules, but you have to come and ask. And when that happens, you get this big case by case fight because those things usually have to be approved by the local city council. Um, and so rather than having these big picture discussions on like, you know, let's sit down and do a 30 year comprehensive plan for our city. And then that comprehensive plan should force us to change elements of our zoning code to allow the type of development we know we need and we ultimately want. Instead, we get these case by case fights. Uh, these are the planning hearings that, you know, fill up your local newspaper and, and drive, you know, really extreme comment sections. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of the way that the participatory planning works under zoning. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I'm curious, Nolan, um, do you have hope for reforming zoning in the U.S. and kind of defeating special interests when they come up? Or is this just kind of a pipe dream? Is this, I mean, obviously, if you're working on it, you think it must be achievable. Yeah. I mean, I I, I go back and forth on what, what we're doing right now. I mean, there's moments where I think we're, we're just keeping a tradition alive for, for when the moment aligns. Um, and then there's moments where I think, wow, things really are changing. Um, you know, here I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles, which is kind of like an advanced case of zoning breaking a city um, and ditto uh, for San Francisco in a, in, a, in a slightly different way. And, you know, here, the problem of things like housing affordability and access in the high opportunity regions has become so extreme that there finally is a coalition that can overcome all those special interests. And I think that's mostly what we've seen with things like the Yemi movement, right? It, People have all these conspiracies about the Yumbi movement. Um, and to my mind, it's just fairly obvious that for one of the first times in US history, a lot of young professionals realized, oh, I don't actually have a path toward owning my own home. Uh, and they became naturally very upset about that. Uh, of course, most of them just left and, and go you know, to raise housing prices in places like Utah and Idaho and Arizona. But of those who stayed, they were like, yeah, I mean, this is very obvious that the status quo hurts me and it enriches someone who was lucky enough to buy a Bay Area home uh, in the 70s. And that's kind of a crazy system. That's a crazy way to run uh, a city, let alone an entire country. Um, so from that perspective, I'm really optimistic. I mean, we're already seeing policy transfer happen. So stuff like California pioneering the preemption of accessory dwelling units, which allow homeowners to have an additional apartment in their garage or attic or basement. Um, California has legalized those statewide, regardless of, of how restrictive local zoning ordinances are. And we're already seeing- Can I just say how much I love the phrase legalize housing? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, and, and this is, I think, part of the genius of, of, of Yimby, right? Yes, in my backyard. Like, uh, I think there's a, there's a positive element to it, right? We're, we're so, so much of planning is so reactive and so negative. And so, you know, we had a whole generation where, you know, being a, a steward of your city meant saying no and blocking things. And in a different context where you had stuff like freeways being built through neighborhoods, or you had the government coming in and actually imminent domaining an entire neighborhood, I actually think that impulse was totally valid, right? And, you know, the people who stopped neighborhoods from getting demolished to build freeways or to build, you know, um, sports stadiums, uh, God bless them. Uh, but we're in a very different context now when that same impulse gets applied toward a fourplex uh, or maybe a coffee shop on the corner of your street, right? Like th these are very different things. This is, this is no longer, hey, we're gonna stop 
um, you know, large malicious actors from coming in and taking away people's homes to we're not going to let you do what you want with your home. And also, we're just not going to allow anyone to build homes for you. Um, I mean, but back to your question, I'm very optimistic. I the, the conversation to me, it seems like in a place like California, there's something like a consensus that that something has to be done. I'm sure you can find troglodyte, um, you know, outer wealthy suburb uh, assembly members who are in denial about this. I know they exist. Uh, but for the most part in California, most serious people are like, okay, yeah, we have a problem. The problem is that there's just not enough supply coming online. And it comes down to a lot of these regressive zoning rules that were written a hundred years ago. Let's fix it. Um, so I'm very optimistic from that perspective. How do you, how do you think about going about that? Like the, the problem I see is I, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think the tide has turned and people are interested in like, you know, why, why is how, why have housing prices gone up, up so much, you know? And, and I think a lot of people believe like it's, it's due to zoning and a lot of things that have gone wrong there where you just can't, you know, can't build more housing. Um, it's supply is very fixed. But my, my question is, is like, uh, you know, for an individual person, it, it's not worth very much versus the homeowner who uh, doesn't want, you know, the skyscraper beside them or something that would block their zucchini garden. Like the lady with the zucchini garden, you know, she's really motivated to keep her zucchini zucchinis growing, right? Um, whereas like, yes, it would be much better if my rent was like, $50 less, $100 less a month, but that's spread out. And for her, it's very concentrated. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, I think I think in the near term, uh, they've avoided this problem because people, I think people have a kind of need to be a part of communities like this. So gotcha. you're exactly right that me as an individual renter, uh, you know, if I go out and do YIMBY advocacy, I, I have basically no dreams that this is going to like lower my rent or... Right. even maybe to a lesser extent that it'll make housing cheap enough in a near enough term for me to actually buy it. Um, so on one level, like I, I sort of appreciate what I'm doing as making cities cheaper for the next generation of people who are in my situation uh, and getting some psychic benefit from that. And also the benefit of a community. You know, I found that these groups are, are really great and it's passionate. If you want to meet people who are really passionate about building more affordable, walkable, equ equitable cities, you know, these are, these are great communities to be a part of. Um, but I think exactly to your point, right, just, there's some fundamental issues with, with the system that I actually, this is partly one of the reasons why I sort of are try, I'm trying to move the conversation toward what comes after zoning. Because you're exactly right that, that uh, incumbent property owners are always going to have some incentive to use a system like zoning uh, to exclude. And they're going to have a much stronger incentive to show up at those meetings. And at the end of the day, they're probably almost always going to be the key special interest that's driving land use planning. And we need to think about a system that's robust to that sort of uh, different capacity or interest in being involved in the process. That's sort of why I get to this whole need for things like scientific surveys or focus groups. Uh, Ooh, and let's, things let's get into that. What comes yeah. after the revolution? What comes after zoning? We can talk about how we get there in a bit, but what is the vision you want to implement? Yeah, so I, I make the case for two things. I, so. The first half of this is, is uh, we have a city that doesn't have zoning. Uh, it's Houston. Uh, Houston's a very weird city. Um, it's, I, it's hard to refer people to zoning because I don't think, Houston made so many of the other city planning mistakes of the 20th century, right? They built huge freeways. Uh, they demolished like, you know, half of their downtown. They mandate parking, stuff like that. But they did make one mistake of 20th century planning. And that was they didn't adopt zoning. Uh, and 
they have a sort of unique system for making that work. Like, why did Houston not adopt zoning? One of the reasons is that they had a pretty robust system of private deed restrictions and covenants. So people in these single family home neighborhoods who had extremely strong preferences for keeping out things like neighborhood commercial uses or even multifamily basically were able to opt out of non-zoning. They have these deed restrictions. Um, now, people always love to say, oh, these things are basically like deed restrictions or deed restrictions are basically like zoning. Houston basically have zoning. Um, it's not at all the case. These deed restrictions only apply to these very small pockets of where these people actually live. And so unlike in a zone city, they don't really have any say on what happens outside their little fiefdoms. They don't have any say on what happens on the commercial property that's just down the street from their subdivision. That's um, interesting. And that is the case in other cities. So I, as a constituent there, can have say on what happens in a place outside of my own local community? Yeah, or, or outside your, right? So you might be on a residential side street, right? And it's all single family homes and you're in Houston and there's a deed restriction that applies to all of them that, hey, all of us want this type of community. So not a, we're all gonna sign this agreement saying that we're not going to turn our homes into apartment buildings or office buildings. Uh, setting aside that office buildings don't even wanna be on streets like that. Um, but at the end of the street, right? There might be like an IHOP on the corner and as rents are going up, IHOP said, you know, land prices are going up. IHOP says, all right, actually, this land is more valuable to us to just sell it um, or, you know, and then move into the, the residential pad that, or the retail pad that the developer will put in the new building, right, perhaps. Um, and in and, and the Houston context, neighbors can raise a fuss, and they do, uh, but they ultimately don't have a lot of levers for stopping that if it's outside of their little deed-restricted, uh, you know, fiefdom. So you're Where saying that like zoning, sorry to interrupt, but like basically you're, there's a key point here I, I want to make sure I'm interpreting correctly, is that it seems like zoning is a way to kind of superpower the right to complain of people who don't like the direction something's going into. So yeah. like, it, it, so it's not just that there are organized opposition, it's that the law props up the organized opposition to have like really like super standing to complain or something like that. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the institutions effectively have that result, right? Which is that if if it, it comes down to if enough people show up and complain, something's not going to happen, kind of regardless of what the the findings are. But or, it's not just like a pure democratic thing. It's like like there's enough angry people who don't want this, so therefore it doesn't happen. It's like no, it's because the law of zoning gives their votes basically much more power than other people's because they can point out that this is like against the zoning ordinance or whatever. Well, this is, this is, I think, an area where zoning as a plot, zoning in theory diverges with zoning as applied, right? Zoning in theory, that IHOP, let's say that IHOP needs a rezoning to be an apartment building. Um, they go to the city planning commission, they make their case, they say, hey, you know, uh, here's all the ways that we, that this project will advance uh, community, comp you know, ideals discussed in the comprehensive plan. Uh, here's all these sort of community needs that this project is going to fulfill. Uh, right. In theory, the city planning commission is supposed to make findings on these types of, of planning considerations. Uh, in practice, uh, exactly to your point, we have kind of a tyranny of whoever shows up to complain. Right. And as we know from 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 literature, the types of people who show up to complain are not very representative of the broader community. In many cases, they're older. Uh, they tend to be white. They tend to be much wealthier. I mean, when you have these planning hearings that are at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, um, naturally, you're going to get a certain type of person. But so zoning in practice ends up becoming this this um, this situation where it's it's a tyranny of whoever shows up and, and how they feel about the project. Um, and so in a context like Houston, 
it's slightly different, right? So people within their, their communities, they can voluntarily opt into land use rules that might look something like an R1 zoning district or might look something like a single family zoning district in another city. Uh, but number one, they have to voluntarily opt into it. Uh, and number two, they have no say on properties outside of their, outside of the community that opted into it uh, without maybe buying those rights or negotiating for those rights. And that's something you do see in, in Houston and other unzoned contexts is when you don't have this sort of uh, regulatory fiat determining what can go where, neighbors actually talk to each other and they actually buy each other's rights. And they, you know, of course, some communities yeah. are going to have more sophisticated sophistication in this than others, but so you have to pay for the right to exclude, essentially, is what you're saying, is that it's like, if you want the right to keep your neighborhood frozen in amber, you have to buy out the other people who may not agree with you, rather than just have it as some kind of divine right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, there are cases like this in, in unzoned context where, for example, um, you might have a residential neighborhood that uh, the back end of it fronts against a commercial strip, right? And they have a deed restriction that applies to their neighborhood but there's a little commercial property that could be a lot of different things. And a gas station is proposed on that property. Neighbors really don't want a gas station because they're noisy and they have floodlights and they smell bad. Um, and so they buy out maybe the right of that property owner to develop it into a gas station. They say, you know, we will be fine with a strip mall, uh, but we really don't want a gas station. So that types of like, that type of cosy and bargaining, uh, you know, to go back to that sort of theoretical framework, which I think is underappreciated by Lanny's planners, it does happen and it can happen. And actually, I think there's a role for, for planners to play in facilitating those types of transactions, right? Because we know that um, the, the theory depends on zero transaction costs and we know that that doesn't apply to the real world. We can have land use planning frameworks that, that reduce those transaction costs and get people to, into the, you know, at the negotiating table on, you know, land uses or practices that, that maybe offend one side of the party and get them to a point where they can reach a settlement to find mutually agreeable land uses. As opposed to this sort of the way we do it today, which is essentially relying on the regulatory fiat of 50 years ago. Right. Okay, so your, your, your thesis is basically that not only is this going to more accurately represent the interests and desires of people who actually live in places rather than just whoever shows up at 2 a.m. on 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. Um, but it also um, it also is more responsive to change and needs and, and demands over time. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another big issue with zoning, right? It's that it, it sort of locks cities into whatever the vision was or whatever the reality was when they adopted their zoning code. Um, so, for example, the New York City zoning code is, in its current version was adopted in 1961. Uh, that was a time when there was fear of, you know, people are going to be leaving the city. Maybe industry might be leaving the city. Um, so, you know, they took a zoning code that allowed, you know, hundreds of millions of people and dropped it down to a zoning code that allowed, you know, eight to 10 million people. Um, of course, now New York City is a very different place and there's, you know, significant demands within the city, but we still have this zoning code that only allows a very small number of additional people to move into the city, just based on zone capacity. So, you know, you're exactly right. You need a more dynamic system of land use planning. I mean, I, the way I characterize it is emergent forms of land use planning. Um, you know, people are actually pretty good at setting up a lot of these institutions that they would like. The operative form of land use planning in most U.S. contexts, even where zoning exists, are private deed restrictions, neighborhood associations, HOAs. Uh, in many cases, they're much more restrictive than zoning and people opt into them. Um, and so, you know, I think if people want to do that, that's perfectly fine. Obviously, you know, we have rules for, for certain types of rules that we as a society uh, don't want to see enforced by courts. So things like, you know, racial covenants uh, are no longer enforceable. 
Um, but if you want to pull together all your neighbors and, and, and have them all sign a contract saying we're only going to do single family homes here, uh, that's fine. Uh, then don't try to adopt these broader zoning institutions that um, stop up growth elsewhere in the city. And that's essentially how Houston has avoided having zoning is that the people with the most extreme preferences for zoning life Laney's planning uh, got it in a way that didn't actually destroy the entire city. So that's, it's, it's interesting to bring up Houston because I, I grew up around Houston. I grew up in Conroe, which is just a, you know, stone sort of way. Um, and Houston, yeah, it, it famously doesn't have zoning. It does have the, the, the covenants. It's really interesting to hear you talk about the nuance between those because I often heard that, that kind of, con- that, um, that deed restrictions basically are zoning by another name, but it's interesting to hear that, that you take the position that they're not really. And it's interesting to get into those details. Now, one thing that a lack of zoning, you know, you talk about Houston's other mistakes, um, a lack of zoning has not saved Houston from is just enormous sprawl. Like Houston, I mean, more than plenty of other cities has just enormous sprawl. And so here is something we'd like to do a little segue here towards the end of the show towards Will and I's mutual interest is, you know, Georgism and land value taxation, you know? And it's interesting sometimes in urbanism is that you see people who think like land value tax will solve this and that's all we need. And you hear some other people think, you know, no, 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 we don't need that at all. All we need is zoning reform, you know? And, and Will and I kind of take the position that they're allied positions. They're two great tastes that taste great together. And they kind of work better at this to, if you have both together at the same time than individually. But I'm curious what your position is. And, you know, do you agree? Do you disagree? You know, what, what is your take on land value taxation and property tax reform alongside zoning reform? Does it help? Does it hurt? Is there really tricky nuance to get right? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, just to sort of like start in a different place with answering that question. I mean, a city like Houston is sprawling uh you know, for, for reasons that probably weren't ever going to be really affected by the land use planning or maybe even the property tax system or the, the land tax system you had in place, right? Houston is kind of like an urban economics model. It's a flat featureless plain with, um, you know, not a lot of like high value agricultural uses, um, n- not dissimilar to, you know, other sort of Southwestern cities, right? So, so why does a city like, to a lesser extent than Houston, why does a city like Phoenix sprawl other than where it bumps up against public land or, or, or reservations? Because there's literally no other economic use of the land. Um, and so as soon as, you know, you have the infrastructure in place that those properties are going to get developed usually into to single family homes. Um, but isn't there an argument that, that, um, that, you, 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 that the infrastructure is not necessarily able to support itself and the nature of, you know, kind of the strong towns argument that it's like sprawling happens because it's cheaper to buy the marginal land, even if that's worse for the total economic system, because speculation has driven the price up of the interior land. So you have to go get the later land, even though now you're paying more to like pave a road out there and drive sewers out there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, although in the Houston context, I'm sure they have like a Ford F-150 Texas edition or whatever, rather than a Subaru. But um, no, I mean, I, I just wanted to start with that because people are always like, oh, well, like Houston doesn't have zoning and look at how sprawling Houston is. Like Houston doesn't look like uh, Boston. Well, it's like there are historical and geographical reasons why Houston doesn't look like Boston um, or or New York, right? You know, when you, when you have like these, co- you have places that actually have like land constraints development is going to be denser just by the nature of land prices uh, or, or cities that grew up before the advent of the car are going to end up looking very, very different from cities that, that grew up after it. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert in, in, in land tax uh, issues. I mean, I'm, I'm broadly sympathetic to the argument. I think it makes sense. 
Um, you know, I, of course, this is, this is so much of the value of land is tied up in neighborhood uses. And in that sense, it is kind of a land use planning uh, consideration, right? That, that so much of the value of your land comes from what your neighbors do. Uh, and also the, the infrastructure improvements. I think for another thing for a, a city like Houston, just to sort of say, why does Houston sprawl? You know, is it, is it a function of non-zoning? Houston sprawls for the same reason that every major city in Texas sprawls, which is these geographical flat features playing elements, but also the city built infrastructure. Uh, you know, they built massive roads out to the middle of greenfields. And, you know, your city is going to look like, you know, the infrastructure that you plan for. Um, so, you know, if you weren't building these huge freeways that reduce commuting times for people who live in Plano to get to downtown Dallas, then you wouldn't have sprawl all the way out there. Um, and, you know, I'm not to, I, I'm very much uh, sympathetic to the Strong Downs argument that this is, this is a pretty, you know, a fiscally very dangerous pattern of development and that, you know, a lot of cities haven't fully internalized the maintenance costs and the regular rebuilding costs of a lot of this infrastructure. Um, I, you know, back when it was still something that anyone thought was going to pass, I was, you know, a little uneasy about some of the build back better uh, uh, mechanisms for spending this money to build more of these freeways. Um, you know, I think back to your actual question about land value taxes, I think it, it gets the incentives aligned, right? It, it, in terms of how people use property, um, you know, one of the things I wonder with it is, is for, you know, the extent to which this pushes, uh, you know, long-term homeowners out of their property if they don't want to, right? So, so something that was happening in Lexington, which speaks to just how bad housing prices have gone national, that my hometown of Lexington, Kentucky uh, has things like gentrifying neighborhoods and rising home prices, is what was pushing out a lot of incumbent homeowners was that as more people were moving into the community, uh, property taxes were going up. And it's property taxes, but the mechanism would have worked the same for land value, right? Like land values are going up because more people want to live in that neighborhood. So the only way they were able to kind of get out of the situation where, you know, in many cases, retired senior homeowners were having their property bills quadruple or, you know, uh, quintuple was to offer some form of relief for, for low-income households. That's something where I, you know, because I think that the basic theory makes total sense to me. But I wonder about these sort of marginal cases of like, you know, how do we work around some of the problems of land value taxes? Yeah, you're, I mean, you're the expert, though. So, I mean, you can well, you have interesting ideas on this. Well, there's a, there's a lot of people you talk to. There's a lot of schools of thoughts. You know, there's some people who want to do all sorts of political horse trading. You know what I mean? So, like, one of them is that it's like one of the oldest ideas, of course, is that you take a lot, you know, all or at least a portion of the land value tax that you raise in your community and you redistribute it as a citizen's dividend. Right. And what that basically makes it is that, you know, the, um, you know, that, that, that's basically kind of your, your sort of abatement right there. Other people are willing to like carve out some restrictions and do some, some, um, do some horse trading for, you know, the, the poor widow, so to speak. Right. You know, but the other part of the argument is that something people bring up a lot is that nobody talks about the poor widow who's a renter who gets kicked out of her place. And nobody talks about the poor widow who's homeless, who can't afford a place. Mm -hmm. Right. It's only the poor widow who's in a, $500,000 million home who needs to pay taxes on it that, that anyone ever, like, like everyone cares about her rights, but nobody cares about, about the other two poor widows. And um, so, I mean, in terms of practical politics, there's a lot of roads you can go down. I think, first of all, even your most ardent single tax or Georgist admits that we're not getting there overnight and that, you know, the first step is to take your existing property tax regime and just shift it off of buildings and on the land, you know, but collect the same amount of tax. So that really, you know, hopefully incentivize more building in various places and stuff like that. So that the supply can reach as the population increases, 
housing increases too, so that it, it's not just this one-way ratchet. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a big discussion. I don't want to monopolize what is your interview on, on this slide topic, but we wanted to at least touch on it, you know? No, it's interesting. I mean, I think of the issues that I focus on, I think there are similar considerations, right? So uh, in the transportation planning realm, things like congestion pricing or uh, the pricing of on-street parking. Um, these are things that, that uh, the theory is rock solid in the same way that land value tax makes sense. And I think that the, the conversations actually come down to political conversations of, you know, how do you adopt these things in ways that, that, or how do you organize these things in ways that actually get passed, right? So you mentioned just paying out a dividend. I think that that actually is pretty underrated as, as, a, as a policy mechanism. Or, you know, in the parking context, right, I work with Donald Shoup here at UCLA, and his idea of how do we get neighborhoods to voluntarily adopt on-street parking pricing? Well, you set aside all the money that's generated by streets in that neighborhood and you put it into a pot for repaving streets in that neighborhood, planting street trees, um, you know, improving services in that community. Uh, so people can see, immediately see the benefits of, of the system, right? Or with stuff like congestion pricing, um, you, you take some of that money uh, and you, you use it to improve the quality of transportation infrastructure. Or just like you said, you just pay a dividend. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating and um, I'm a little bit more, you know, curious about progress on that. You know, I, I, to my knowledge, there aren't any cities talking about going over to pure land value tax. I know Pennsylvania has, has pockets where they do split roll or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, that, that would be an interesting, I mean, this, there are all these other conversations that need to happen to make cities work that I think like getting ladies planning fixed is like a near term thing, but uh, you know, public finance and, and transportation planning are, are two other cans of worms that we can open up once we, once we've solved housing affordability. Well, I think there's um, um, an LVT proposal in Richmond, Virginia, isn't there? Richmond's okay. the big one right now. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, there, it's coming back. It used to be this thing that was like kind of this crazy, like, you know, idea that everyone had forgotten about, but it's coming back in a lot of ways in, in small and um, incremental measures. But there's a lot, a lot of renewed interest in it, as you can tell, along with just EMBism together. They're kind of correlated ideas for good reason, because they work together, you know, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, th but I think ideas can move a lot quicker than we realize. I mean, if you had told me that California was going to effectively abolish single family zoning uh, in five years, if you had told me that in 2016, I would think you're completely crazy. You could if have made a lot of easy money off of me on a bet against it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or if you had told me that like in 2022, most major cities were going to have either abolished their minimum parking requirements or we're going to be pretty close to that. I would say like, okay, you're extremely optimistic and, and God bless you. Um, and, and minimal parking requirements are like, you must build this much parking with each new development or whatever. Is that what you're talking about specifically for the benefit of the listeners? That's correct. Yeah. So it says if you want to build an apartment building, you have to also build a parking garage with one, one or two spaces per apartment. Or if you want to build a supermarket, you have to build a giant surface lot. And this, this is one of those things that just when you understand these rules and you know what they are, it's, it sort of helps you explain why the U.S. urban landscape looks like what it does. <laughs> can, I just, can I just segue back to the SimCity vision? One thing that's really interesting is that if you go and you play SimCity or the new incarnation by a totally different company, City Skylines, you'll notice the lack of parking, the conspicuous <laughs> lack of parking. If you compare it to an overhead aerial photograph of actual American cities, like the amount of surface parking versus what you see in these little city planning games, it, there's, like, there's like no parking. 
And if you interview the developers, they're like very aware of it, but they said, it's like, well, if you do that, the cities are ugly and it's not fun and it's not as interesting. And so we just kind of pretended that there's infinite underground, just free parking for everything. Like the, the little car just arrives at the building and then disappears, you know? And right. I think that's kind of very telling that aesthetically, you know, like we, we kind of have that preference and, um, you know, but, but in real life, like we have these like splayed out parking lots just everywhere. No, absolutely. I mean, this gets back to the way we started the conversation almost perfectly. Uh, you don't have giant parking lots in some city. Um, you, you're not, there's no threat that you're going to get fired in some city yep. exactly. in a way that you might, if you're an actual city planner. Uh, there's no uh, public hearings where people will show yep. up and yell at you. Um, you know, the, so, you know, I, I comment on, I'll, I did a 20 year retrospective on SimCity uh, in Reason Magazine. And I, I try to sort of comment on all of this and, and the irony of this game, inspiring a generation of, of people to go into city planning uh, and, and sort of the rude awakening that we all collectively got when we actually went out and discovered how dysfunctional U.S. city planning institutions were. But like I was saying, I'm, I'm optimistic about a lot of this stuff. And I think there's a lot of great people doing fantastic work. Um, and we're seeing really good policy ideas spread. And a lot of really great people enter this space and do really interesting research and activism. So I'm optimistic. And then, of course, once my book comes out, it'll it'll definitively solve all these problems. That's great. Uh, yeah, so. we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Nolan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. I know we've got to get you to a class uh, you're teaching this evening. Um, where can people find your book? When's it coming out? Where would you like to send people? Sure. Yeah. So uh, you can pre-order a book. It's coming out in June. Uh, you can pre-order. Pre-orders are open on Island Press or on Amazon. Uh, What's the title again? Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How We're Going to Fix It. Uh, well, that sounds like a great read. The, the working title was actually Against Zoning, but my editor insisted that that was a little too harsh and uh, that's, she was obviously right and that's why editors uh make the big bucks uh but awesome. arbitrary lines uh yes yeah, open for pre-orders and in the meantime i'm on twitter you know i'm very chatty on twitter and, and, as, as the as the safe haven for for yimby activism uh and also georgia's uh <laughs> so uh you can follow me there m nolan gray uh but uh thanks thanks again for having me this is a really interesting conversation no thanks very much nolan i learned a lot i'm i'm, I'm really interested we'll have to make a I'll have to make our, some, I'm actually a game developer as my actual job. So one day I kind of have dreams of doing or an urbanist take on SimCity that like actually grapples with all the annoying things that are actually like really, really salient. Well, well my, my little, my issue with SimCity is you can't do a city without zoning. You have to have zoning. Oh yeah. City. Yeah. It's just, it's just assumed. Like I remember playing it on like the super Nintendo and just being like, so that's how you make all cities ever. And that's just the basic of everything. I fun fact, I never built any industrial zones in any of my cities because I didn't want any of the pollution. And <laughs> so like I had cities where, where you could live and you could shop, but you couldn't work. Well, and, and somehow, you know, the, the game never punished me for that, which is hilarious. But you know what? At every single thing, this was like kind of a prelude to what would happen in my life later. At every little like time it would tell you what the issues in your city was, everyone was like housing costs. They're too high. And I was like, but what's the problem? I increased the land value as much as possible. Why is everyone mad? Well, yeah, it sounds it sounds only slightly more incoherent than the typical actual zoning ordinance. Right. Cool. Well, Nolan, well, thanks, we, Nolan. we're really glad you had us on. Uh, I'm, we that we had you on, and uh, Will, thank you for allowing me to you know um, become your kind of stealth co-host here, just <laughs> worming my way into the podcast. 
Love it. Well, thanks, Nolan. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.